be reading from chapter 5 of John, starting in 1, going to 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in an Aramaic called Beshedtha, which has five roof, come on, Blake, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man with One man was there who had an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had healed him, who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Good morning. I want to open up maybe just a, a little bit different um, this morning than usual, just to maybe kind of still our hearts and set things in motion. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church, this place, this time opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, who is the ally of his enemies, who is the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. So that's our welcome. And what I hope for is in that welcome that I've gathered every one of us in the room together in one place because we fit one of those categories, if not more, right? We've sinned and we need a savior. We need a defender. We have offended God and we still need him to be our friend through Christ. So all of us collectively, let's just join our our hearts together as we as we get going, and we'll just say a quick prayer again to kind of to get ready, and then um, we'll, we'll dig in. So let's pray just one more time. Father, we, we come to you, oh God, so thankful for your word and so thankful for its revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts and in our lives. God, I pray that this, um, that this seed wouldn't fall on any other ground but a, 
a ground that would bring up a fruit, a harvest that would be tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold, both in our, in our hearts and in the hearts of those that we might encounter and engage in the days to come. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So to recap, uh, what, we've, what we've seen over the last chapter is Jesus has been wrapping up some of these, he, he's, where we're at now, he's wrapped up a few divine appointments. Uh, the first appointment we saw was this, um, this meeting that, that he had with a Samaritan woman at the well, which, um, again, still a little mad at Trent about that, uh, that he got, he got the bulk of that, because it is, man. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just there in the story of Jesus engaging this Samaritan woman. Uh, so, so he had that appointment set up at a specific place, at a specific time in history for a specific purpose. And not only that, but he had a follow-up appointment already set up with his disciples. So at the right time, the disciples have, have arrived back at the scene where Jesus is having this encounter, and he uses that as a teaching moment for them. Like, the, here's, here's, the, here's the big idea, guys. Here's the purpose of why I'm even here. And, and, and so he, has, he uses that moment, and then he, they, they walk away from there, and they, they head over to the next town, and, and there he encounters this prominent uh, public figure, this official, where um, he is, is desperate for his son to be healed. His son is dying, and he approaches Jesus because he heard about this Jesus guy who's able to do miracles, and so he approaches this guy. Now, this is also a divine appointment that, God, that Jesus has set this up at the right uh, time in the right place for a specific purpose. And so uh, we, we're, we're now coming on the heels of that, and we find in verse 1 of chapter 5 where we're going to be today. After, after this, after these divine appointments... After all these moments, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Because Jesus has another appointment set up, like he has divine appointments set up from this point forward, and so he's going there, obviously to celebrate a, um, a cultural celebration. We're not quite sure exactly which feast it was. It's probably one of three feasts, but we don't know for sure, so we just won't even ponder on that too, too much. But he was, he was headed to Jerusalem. Uh, to first celebrate and to also have an encounter with this man in verse 2. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So it's very important for us. So I learned a little something as I was studying because I've always referred to the pool of Bethesda, in my mind, the way I had it fixed was it was a pool, like Bethesda was like a, play, like a town or something, like a village, and this pool was there. But actually, the pool is called Bethesda. You see, in, in the text there, it says that, uh, that there was, a, there was a, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic, they called it Bethesda. And so it's important. I'm going to set up, I'm going to kind of go ahead and set up for the rest of our time a very important thing that we need to know about that word Bethesda. The word Bethesda means house of kindness or house of mercy. And so that, that, let's remember that because that sets up the whole stage for what's fixing to go down here. Uh, because what strikes me is odd as soon as I know that, as soon as I understand that this is a, this place where all of these invalids are, these crippled people, these lame people, these sick people, they're all collected at a place called the house of mercy, the house of kindness. That doesn't sound right. I can't reconcile those two things because it, it looks like no one's receiving mercy and no one's receiving kindness here. 
And so there's, there's some, some trouble I have here. It, it, it's it's kind of, we have to push through this. And so in, in, in this house of kindness or in this house of mercy, there are broken and afflicted people by the multitude. And when you see that word multitude in Scripture, it means a lot. Okay, like we don't have like a specific number or whatever. But when you see that word, the multitude, it's a crowd of people. It could be hundreds of people that were, that were collected here at this place. And so if you happen to be one of these people, just remember in this culture, if you are blind, if you are lame, if you're crippled, if you're sick, just remember that you were the worst of sinners. You must have done something really bad to a point to where you can't even walk down the street in our town, man. Like don't even come to the, especially don't come to the religious place where we're going to meet because you are unclean. And the way you got there is because you were a sinner. Okay, so that's important for us to know as we move forward that uh, if you were one of these people, you were the marginalized. If you were sick, if you were afflicted, if you were crippled, if you were lame, you were, you were one of the cast off, the, 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 uh, the marginalized of society. And people would pass by you every day and just ignore you. They couldn't approach you. They wouldn't go by you because in their mind, whatever you had, they didn't want to get it on them. You're dirty, and, and, and they don't want that. And so put yourself in this position of these, the, the multitude of these people. And one of, the, one of the most tragic things is that they weren't able to go to the temple and worship. They, they were unclean. They were considered unclean, and you can't go to worship unclean. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that even today a church or a pastor or a teacher would stand up and tell you that you can't come to worship because you're dirty, because, because you've done something wrong. That's a tragedy. And God forgive me if I've ever communicated anything like that. And so here they are, broken, sick people who've been uninvited to the worship gathering. You can't come. And not only that, no one, no one from the religious circle would lift a finger to help these people. No one. So the house of kindness, the house of mercy should be a place where broken people, where sick people can come and, and receive healing. Those dirty people, those broken people, those banged up people can come and receive mercy in the house of mercy or kindness in the house of of kindness. And so when I think about Bethesda, right? And, and, and you just, it's, it's naturally for me to think about the church. I don't know if that does that for you, but it, for me, I'm like, yeah, man, that's what the church is supposed to be. You know, the church is supposed to be a, a kind place, a merciful place. And mercy and kindness mean a lot of things. And we'll, we'll get there later, kind of one of the merciful things that Jesus does in this story and so the church should be this kind of place where the marginalized people, where the sinful people, where the sick people can be loved and can be pointed to Jesus. But here in this house of kindness in John chapter 5, there are just multitudes of sick people who stay sick. Who, who, who they don't get well. They just continue to stay sick. There's no mercy for them. There's no help for them. There's no kindness for them. And the reason, the reason I believe that this house of kindness doesn't really show much kindness or show much mercy is because it's been built on this foundation of religion and superstition. 
And if we were to apply what we know about the religious system of this day, the religious leaders, especially the elite, would, would not even go near the place because they have to remain clean. And so they wouldn't even step near the place. Yet this place is built on a religious system and on a superstitious system. So what's my point? Religion is not helping these people. Religion is not helping these people. Religion is not being merciful to these people. Religion is not being kind to these people. And so you also pick up that this is some kind of mystical place. Like something weird is going on here. Um, just maybe a survey of how many of you are, are reading out of a King James Bible right now. Anybody in the room? So we've missed it, right? If you take a look at your scripture, you're missing verse 4 in your scripture. We just blew right through that dude. There's no verse 4 in that text. There's verse 3, verse 5. How many of you have your Bibles that show that? It's a little weird, right? There's no verse 4 there, but... Uh, the King James Version, if you were holding a King James Version of the Scripture, you would have verse 4 there. Now, your Bible will likely have a footnote down at the bottom, and that's where verse 4 would be located. How many of you see your footnote down at the bottom, verse 4? A lot of you, right? So, without going into a whole lot of detail, there are many places in your Scripture where this is found. This is like this. And the reason being is because earlier English translations of the Bible... You, they had a limited amount of original, man, or not original manuscripts, but the earliest manuscripts that they can get their hands on. They had a limited amount, maybe six or eight of those dudes. And so that's what the first English translation of the Bible was referencing as they translated it. Since then, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of manuscripts that are much earlier, much closer to the time that these uh, moments happen, uh, that's where we get our, our, our newer translations, our ESVs and our NIVs and our NLTs and whatever, whatever translation you're using. So when they looked at those earlier manuscripts, they saw that, well, that statement in verse 4, the one you see in your footnote, is not there. It's not in those early manuscripts. And, and, and if we have manuscript upon manuscript upon manuscript that's early, early on, that have the same thing, then it's likely that those are probably a little bit more concrete for us. And so there are a lot of places in Scripture where there was uh, a description given, because obviously if you didn't read chapter, if you didn't read verse 4, then you're a little lost about what's going on. Like, what does this dude mean by getting in the pool and water's being stirred? Like, you miss that. And so that was kind of just a, a margin note, so to speak, as they hand, hand wrote and copied manuscripts. Saying, hey, let me explain to you what's going on here so that you understand you're not lost in, in, in the story here. So that's, that's verse 4. And it was believed that this pool would be stirred by an angel. So they would sit around this pool and it would just be kind of just still waters. And then all of a sudden, ever so often, it would just start stirring. The waters would start stirring. And, and, and it, it was believed that an angel was stirring the water. And if you were, if you were one of those invalids, those, a blind person or, or a sick person or a crippled person, if you could get yourself in the pool first, if you were the first one there, then you would be healed. So now we kind of have a, a context for what's going on here. So if you were the first one there, you would be healed. But understand this. Here's the important thing. It's not by faith that you're being healed. That's the important thing we need to know here, that, that, that God doesn't use these superstitious rituals to heal. It's faith. 
and likely there was just to maybe give you some um, something to chew on. There are places like Bethesda in the world today, uh, places in southern France and New Zealand and South America where there are underground streams that cause these little pools of these ponds to do this. So that's likely what's going on. But again, we don't need to. That's not important. It's not important how the pool worked, right? That's not the essential part of the story. The essential part of the story is that Jesus showed up and Jesus worked. And that's what we need to grab a hold of here. So we see that religion is not being kind and merciful to these people. And neither is this sort of new age spiritualism. None of these things are working for these people. This guy has been this way for 38 years. And Jesus steps right into the center of this sad, sad place. He steps right into the center and we see that he's not just, okay, there's a multitude of people, right? He doesn't go and, 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 and he's not all the, all the way concerned with the multitude of people. He's got his crosshairs on one individual person and that's who he goes to, right? There's, there's plenty of sick and lame people, but Jesus has a divine appointment set up with this man. And so he approaches this man individually because he's concerned about individual people. He's concerned about you as a person. He's concerned about your story. You as an individual. So he's, don't throw yourself in the, in the big mass of cra- uh, crowded people. Like Jesus is coming after you. And he's concerned with you. And he's concerned with your individual story. He notices you. Jesus notices you in a big crowd of people. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Wow. He wades through this multitude of sick people, and he has his crosshairs on this guy. And because Jesus is God, he already knows that this man is sick, what's wrong with him, how long he's been that way. Because Jesus is God, and he engages this guy with the most ridiculous question in the world, right? It's like, it's like asking a little toddler, hey, you want some candy? Well, duh, yes. It's a ridiculous question, but it's not because Jesus never asked a ridiculous question. He never does. When Jesus asks a question, it might seem ridiculous. It might seem very rhetorical. But he's asking that question for a very, very important reason. And he's asking this question because I want you to understand the context of this passage. This man was lame. He was crippled. He can't work. He can't earn a wage. So do you know how how he's been surviving this whole time? He's been a beggar. It's his only means to survive. And he's been doing this for 38 years. This is how this man has been surviving. Ironically, the only thing that's kept this man alive is his sickness. Right? That's, that's who he is. That's how he's, he's wrapped up in that. This is his identity. This is, this is who he's been for 38 years. So here's where Jesus is being very, very merciful. Now think in, the, in that context, think about the question that Jesus asked. Do you want to be healed? Are you sure about that? You sure you want to be healed? You sure you want to get up and walk? Do you realize that your identity and your livelihood, everything about who you are is wrapped up in this sickness? 
So listen up, church. Listen. Are you sure you want to be healed? Like, are you sure you want Jesus to engage you on that level? Because this man was, what Jesus was really asking him is, are you ready to give up everything about who you are? Are you ready to give up everything about what your identity is or what people know you by or what you don't have or what you do have? You sure you want this? Because here's the deal. Just how I opened up, there are areas and and compartments in every one of our hearts, right, that is an area of brokenness, sadness, sickness, darkness, sinfulness that, that will that will define or lead where we go and what we do. Every one of us have this about us. And if, 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 if Jesus were to want to come and put his hand on that area of our life, we would lose our minds, right? Like, you can have all of this, Jesus, but you can't have this. Those of us who are angry, hold on to bitterness. Jesus, you can have all of me except that part. The unforgiveness that you hold in your heart towards someone or even toward yourself Jesus can't have that part. I don't want to be healed from that, Jesus. I don't want to be healed from my selfishness and my self-centeredness. That's about me. You can have every other part about me, but you can't have that part about me. You can't have my bitterness. You can't have my hard-heartedness. You can have every other part about me, but you can't have that part about me. You, You can't have that part of my life that's fueled by my performance or my achievements, or my position. You, can't, you can have every part of me, but you can't have that part of me. Your identity, your very survival is wrapped up in those areas of your life. And so do you want to be healed? It's not, so, it's not such a dumb question now. You sure you want Jesus to come in and to, and to do some stuff in your life? Because when you say, Jesus, it's all yours, he's got to deconstruct some things. Right, And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a little bit when he does this. But this is the only way that he could fully rebuild you. He's going to tear some things down. He's going to take some things away. And if he has to rip them away or tear them away from you, he will do that. Because it's better for you. It's good for you. And the reason that has to become a reality for us is because we can't fix us. We can't fix ourselves. And neither can others, Right? Like, I don't care how awesome your community group leader is. I don't, I don't care how awesome that person that you share your most intimate struggles with in your community groups. I don't care how wise or how smart or how compassionate they are. They can't fix you all the way. It requires Jesus to do that. And so this, look here in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, uh, going, another steps down before me. So he says, basically, Jesus, I want to be healed. I want to be healed, but I can't put myself there. And I don't have anyone to put me there. There's no one around me who, I don't have any friends. And so it's just me here. And so I've got to try to get there myself. And that's impossible. I can't make it. All these other people around, they have help and they can get there a little bit quicker, but I can't make it there. I want to be there and I don't have anyone to help. And so I haven't really kept it a secret how I feel about community groups. You've heard that from us. Some of you are probably, you probably uh, get enraged with anger when you hear that from us because we say it so much. 
But I believe that Christianity is not just you and Jesus. I believe that Christianity is you and Jesus and others who will whip me into shape when I need it. That's how, that's how I believe Christianity should look. And just like what's going on here, you and I have no means to deal with our sin and our brokenness in our lives. Just like this guy had no means to get himself up and, pick, and walk or drag himself into the pool. He's unable to, he's unable to get up. He's unable to, to walk to the pool. And the person who is born into sin is is unable just to get up and walk away from their sin. Right? That's the big struggle that we have as believers is that, you know, I, I just kind of really, I think about Paul writing in Romans chapter 7, like, I know the good, my heart knows what the good is, but it does something else, and I don't even want to do that. I want to do what's good, and, and I can't, and it's this, this, this struggle that we're going to fight as long as we're in this flesh, that we don't get to just walk away from our sin. That it's going to follow us, and we need to figure out how to navigate through that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to overcome sin. And we all have the power as believers in Jesus Christ to do that. And it's very difficult to do that on your own, just a, a me and Jesus kind of Christianity. You have to do that in the context of community where others are walking with you, where others are falling on their face with you, who are tripping up in sinful snares with you, all walking toward Jesus together. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fix you. And when he fixes you, he fixes you fully and finally. Like, this is not something where he's just, yeah, you, you're, you know, here, here's the, the, the diagnosis and here's the treatment and see you in a few days, see if you're better. When Jesus engages you on that level and heals you, you are healed fully and finally. When he does his work in you, I don't know if you remember this, our status. Think about Ephesians chapter 1, right? We walk through that book and the, the book opens with just this glorious description of who we are as believers, that, that we, are, we are chosen that we are holy, that we are blameless. That's Ephesians 1, 4, if you take in notes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, you are loved. You are adopted. Those are your, that's your status. That's your status as a follower of Jesus. When Jesus speaks into your life, when he, when he makes you well, that's your status. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed. That's the other thing. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's who you are in Christ. You are not a person who has been forgiven and you walk around this world hoping that you don't sin again. Your past sins. The stuff that you're currently giving yourself over to today, that sinful thing or those sinful things that you're giving yourself over to today and those that you will commit tomorrow have all been covered. They've all been covered and fully paid for 
at the cross. It is fully and finally finished. So how awesome is that that this man just gets up and walks, right? Who wouldn't celebrate that? That this, this guy, he didn't have to go through this ritual. He didn't have to uh, go through this routine where he had to be the first one in the pool and this kind of crazy whatever belief that they had. Jesus just spoke into his life and he was healed. Get up, take up your mat and walk. Go home. You're healed. So you'd think that everyone would be stoked about that, right? That's something to celebrate, right? If, something, if there was a healing that happened here uh, with someone that we knew who needed healing, that would be a celebration, right? Would, how many of you would have a problem with that? I don't know if anybody would be like, no, that shouldn't have happened. I was wrong. I don't see that in my scripture. Hold on a second. No, we're not going to go there. We're going to celebrate that, that someone was healed, right? But this religious circle, they saw this, these religious elites, they saw what Jesus did, and they started pointing out rules and, and regulations that weren't even biblical, right? Because religion will often try to steal the peace and the beauty of the gospel. That's, what, that's another thing that religion does for us. That's another way that it helps us, is it, is it tries to rob the peace and the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse, the other, other half of verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Hey, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. Like, I want to hurt somebody when I read that. Like, are you serious, man? Are you being serious right now? Something of the, the, the greatest importance that we need to understand about the Old Testament law. Okay? So get this. So you understand... Um, for the rest of your life about the law in the Old Testament. The law in the Old Testament wasn't given to us to say, here are the rules. Adhere to the rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. Do this. Don't do that. Stop that. Abstain from that. That is not why the Old Testament law was given to us. The Old Testament law was given to us as a means of God revealing His holiness and revealing His beauty and revealing His character to us. The Old Testament law was given to us to say, you want to know what God looks like? Here's what God looks like. So it does two things. It does that, it shows us who God is, and it shows us who we are. The Old Testament law is meant to show us the character of God and it's to show us our own nature. And do you, so put yourself up against the law now. What do you see? What I hope you see is cannot, cannot, I cannot do, I cannot accomplish, I cannot do, I cannot do. I see God, but I can't do that. Because that's what the law is supposed to bring us to. It's supposed to point us to our need for a Savior. That's why it was given to us. And so this law, this Old Testament law, is it's kind of a, a teacher, a tutor for us. And it gathers up sinful people and just presents them to Jesus. That's what the law is meant to do. And these religious leaders, they've forgotten this. They forgot that this was what the law was supposed to do. And so they've taken them as a set of rules, and they've added more rules to them, so many rules to them that, they're, they're, that you can't even keep up with all the rules. People don't know the rules. You see, you see all throughout Scripture when people approach Jesus, and they want to ask about some lawful or unlawful things, because that was just a common conversation that you'd have, because no one knew all the rules. There were so many of them. So like, well, 
What happens if this? Do I have to forgive my brother for that? Da 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 da, because I don't know all the rules. There are so many. So they're not meant for us to, to keep, they're meant to point us to Jesus. And nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does it say you can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath. Nowhere. This was a rule that was made up. The religious leader said, this is one of the things that we're going to do. We'll tell you that, that, that here's a to-do list and here's a not-to-do list, and you've got to complete all of these things in order for God to accept you. Hear me well. The Old Testament law cannot make you righteous. No matter how much you can adhere to them, the Old Testament law cannot make you righteous. If that were true, then the crucifixion was a waste. It was a waste. The only way that the Old Testament law can make us righteous is through what Christ has done. Only. And Christ has come, and he hasn't abolished the law. He doesn't say, oh, that's old stuff. Oh, that's old traditional stuff. We're a little bit more progressive now, so here's the route we're going to go. No, Jesus didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He said, you know what? You got to stink at this, and you're supposed to stink at this. I'm going to do it for you. That righteousness that's going to be given by the adherence and the obedience is going to be yours when I'm done with this. So I agree with Jesus and I agree with Paul that the law is good, right? We shouldn't look at the law as a bad thing. It's a good thing because it helps us. It sanctifies us and it points us to Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the law for us. And so church people, listen to me very closely. Here's where I need you to really tune in to me. I worry about us. I worry about us in this room especially when we're here in, in this passage. An undeniable miracle was performed right before their eyes, and they dismiss it. They dismiss it because it's not tangible to them. It's out of their control. Um, it's not something that they're familiar with, and so they dismiss it. Look at verse 11. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. All right, so there's this man who's engaged me, and he said to take up my bed and walk. That's why I'm doing this. This guy has no clue who Jesus is. Right? They asked him, who healed you? I don't know, man. Some dude just walked by. He spoke to me, told me to get up and pick up my mat. So I, I did, right? And that's what you would do if you had a true encounter with Jesus, and he spoke life into you. Then he kind of becomes the authority at that point, right? Like, Dude, I know what the rules are, but this dude just came and healed me. 38 years. No one could help me. This guy walked up and said, get up. So guess what I did? I got up because that guy healed me. So you can have all the rules in the world, but the guy who just healed you told you to take up your bed and walk, who are you going to listen to? Like Who are you going to pay attention to in that moment? And here's the deal. Jesus is much better, much higher, much greater than moralism, right? Moralism, this, this thing that says you must be good, you must do good, and then God will love you. So, so behave properly. Don't stay out past 12. Give all your money away. Sell all your possessions. Like Do all of these things, and then God's going to love you. That's what moralism says. And the moralism, moralism is an assault. It's a violation of the gospel. It assaults the gospel. Because you can't do good enough. 
You aren't good enough. You can't achieve enough. The gospel says Jesus earned your gold stars for you, right? It's impossible for you to get a gold star by your name apart from Jesus Christ. And so he came to do what we were unable to do. And, he, and as he accomplished it, he willingly gave us his status of righteous and holy and blameless. Jesus does this for us. So here's the big idea. Uh, those of us who would say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus in this room, you're, you, you are declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Okay? You are declared righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what you've done. That's the gospel. Look at verse 12. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now once again, we see Jesus walk into a, a wave of people, and he, and, he, and he goes after the individual person. He, he engages this man once again. He's seeking out the one. And he, as he approaches this, this man, he points out that, hey, look, your physical brokenness has been healed. Like, you're, you're well. Look at you. And then he kind of he ties this healing to this man's sin. And this is where we have to be very, very, very careful. What's Jesus doing here? Is Jesus saying that as I sin, I get sick? And Now, universally, let me say our brokenness, our sickness, and our sadness are a result of the fall. That God had perfection, and God had beauty, and order, and our rebellion and sinfulness broke and shattered all of that. But there's this message that could be preached that says, if you do bad, bad things will happen to you. If you do good, good things will happen to you. I think sometimes we call that karma, and that's a bunch of trash. It's a bunch of trash. Thank God that I don't get what I deserve. Thank God. And so here we have Jesus. What is he doing then? Is he, is he saying that, hey, man, karma had you, man, and you... You were going down. Thank God I showed up. So listen, you're, you're well now, and so be cool. Like, don't get out of line, right? That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is contextualizing here. So this is a, this is a term that we use if you want to talk about missions, mission work, right? If I'm going to immerse myself in a culture or a place or a context, then what I want to do is I want to contextualize. I want to know what's going on. You know what these people believed in this day? That if something bad happened to you, it was because you, you did something bad. That karma happened to you. That's what they believe. And so Jesus, he kind of steps into that and says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as a teaching moment. You believe in this karma, right? So he's contextualizing. We're going to see this in John chapter 9. When we get to John chapter 9, uh, when the chapter opens up, there's a, there's a blind man who's there. And the, the disciples say, Jesus, this man who's been blind... Is it because his mother's sin or his father's sin or his sin that caused him to be born this way? He said, no, 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 no. I see, karma's garbage, and that's what you guys believe. No, no, this man was born so that the glory and the beauty and the gracefulness and the mercifulness of God can be displayed in his life. He was made blind for this moment right here. So it's not about karma, and it's not about what you did or what you didn't do that, that got you in the situation you're in. 
We're all broken. We're all sinful people. And so we don't get to measure who's more or less sinful by what kind of afflictions have been given to us or what kind of pressure has been put on our life. And so Jesus is contextualizing here. And what he's doing is he's kindly leading this man to what matters most. Yes, hey, your physical brokenness has been taken care of. But you know what matters even more than that? Eternity. That's what matters even more than your temporary affliction, your temporary broken state, your sadness and your sickness. What matters more than that is eternity. And so Jesus is contextualizing to lead this man to a conversation about his spiritual brokenness. That's where he's going. And he's trying to reveal this man, hey, you know what? Physical healing's great, man. I'm glad to see you, you know, getting around better and everything. But you know what? Your spiritual healing is so much better, so much more important. It's such a higher priority. And sadly, sadly, this man misses this. He misses the entire point. Look what he does in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So instead of this man being honest and said, you know what, Jesus, you're right. You're right, man. I couldn't drag my sorry tail in the pool. I didn't have anybody to put me there. I can't drag myself away from my sin. I am broken spiritually. Rather than going there and being honest with himself, he sells Jesus out. He throws Jesus under the bus here. If you were... Uh, if you were with us when we were in week eight of this series of, of John, the Gospel of John, we were presented with some pretty hard realities. And in chapter 2, verse 24, it said, Now when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So that's a hard reality. I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't entrust myself to you because what do you believe me for? And so we have a guy who now fits this category. If you'd struggled with that when we were in that text, here's a guy that fits that category perfectly. That a guy, yeah, I believed you for my physical healing, but it's, I, I can't get there spiritually. I don't believe that you can heal me spiritually that way. And Jesus didn't entrust himself to this man. So he believed in Jesus for physical healing, but he just couldn't see how Jesus could heal him spiritually. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I hope, you, I hope, that, I hope that text is being buried in your heart week after week after week because it's, it's spoken into your heart week after week after week. You want to know the purpose of, of why we're going through John? why we're reading this book and why we're proclaiming the message of John so that by believing in Jesus that you may have life. That's what we want. That's what Jesus wants for you is to have life. And that's why we have these, these miracle moments in the, in the gospel of John. And it's quite possible for you to have an experience with Jesus, have an encounter with Jesus without fully receiving Jesus. It's possible for you to engage Jesus and not fully receive Jesus. You can go to church your entire life and miss Jesus. 
You can be a devoted servant here, elsewhere, and still miss Jesus. You can, you can even plant a church and still miss Jesus. You could even stand up here week in and week out preaching the gospel and miss Jesus. You can sit in this room and hear the gospel week in and week out and miss Jesus. It's possible that you can stand here and sing every song by heart and miss Jesus. We're, we're seeing it here that I can serve my community day in and day out. And I can go tutor and I can go throw parties and I can go do all of these things and miss Jesus. And if we've done that, we, we're caught up in a great tragedy because that's the point. And the tragedy in this passage is that Jesus individually seeks out this man. Not once, not once, but twice individually seeks out this man and he still misses the glories and the beauty of Jesus. Still. Might I say there are many in this room who have been going to church your whole life and you're still not overwhelmed with Jesus. Like you're still not just completely overwhelmed with Jesus. That you don't wake up in the morning, right? That, that, and just you be amazed by Jesus. Rather, you wake up in the morning and here's my ritual. Here's what I do. I do this, I do that. I have my Bible reading plan. I have my devotion. I have my journal. I go through all of these religious rituals and routines and miss Jesus. And I could be doing that my entire life and miss Jesus. What a tragedy that would be. Forgive me if I ever ask you to adhere to rituals, routines, and practices before embracing Jesus. Because that's the main point. That's the, that's the main idea. I don't want you to go through life with these routines and rituals and miss Jesus or even be indifferent toward Jesus. Like I'm doing all of these things, but you know what? My heart just isn't blown up by Jesus right now. That's the main idea. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, a rule that was kind of made up by the, by the religious leaders, uh, that he did some things that weren't, that weren't legal, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Like, that's a big deal. Like, if I were to sit up here and say that today, you guys would, I'd hope you'd go, oh, he just called himself God. Because that's a big deal. So here's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders wrestled with um, in, in, in ancient uh, philosophy circles and religious conversations. Here's what they struggled with. That God created for six days, and then he took a day of rest. Right? So that's, that's what we know. God worked for six days. He created for six days, and then he took a day of rest. But they struggled with this because they thought, they thought more about it. They said, well, hold on, but God's also sustainer. So how did he rest on the Sabbath and still sustain the world? So they, they had this conflict now in their conversation. So they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here's what the ancient philosopher said. Here's, here's the deal. God took a rest as creator. God did not take a rest on the Sabbath as sustainer. And that's true. 
God still holds everything in his hands. So he's not taking a day off and saying, you guys got it. I'll see you next week. You know, like that's not what God's doing. He is sustainer every minute, every moment. And so that was the conflict that, that the religious leaders had at this time. And so here, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus coming in and saying, just as the Father gives life and sustains on the Sabbath, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to give life on the Sabbath. So here's, the, here's the, the punch in the gut in this text that God, like Jesus here, he, he, here's one of the undeniable places in Scripture where he presents himself not as a prophet, not as a rabbi, not as a good teacher, not as a good moral guy, but he presents himself as God in the flesh. One of those undeniable places in Scripture where everybody was just ready to stone him when he done this, when, he, when these words come out of his mouth. So, so today, Jesus is wading through the crowds, right? He's, he's pushing through the crowds. He's confronting the rules with the gospel and with boldness, without fear. Like Jesus is doing these things today, and I would hope that he'd be doing these things in this room, that he would be confronting you with some of the things that you might be tied up with are bound to and that you see the beauty and the glory of who he is that there's good news that yes you can't keep that list of to do's and not to do's they were meant for him to keep so that in him we may have life when we see him we may have life and so the question is do you want to be healed like honestly do you want to be healed Because I don't want to make this thing about say a prayer, raise your hand, fill out a card, follow Jesus. Like when, when we're inviting you to follow Jesus, what we're inviting you to is healing. Saying, hey, all of those parts in you that are broken and sick are going to have to be ripped away. All those things that you hold as your God, those things that you worship and serve right now, those things are going to have to be stripped from you. And it's a sad day when those things are your actual identity. It's what people know you by. It's who you are, right? And so if someone thinks about you today, what are they, what's the first thing that's going to come to their mind? That thing, if it's not Jesus, needs to be taken from you. That needs to be removed from you so that Jesus can be what's about who you are. He can be your identity. So don't miss him or what he's trying to, to speak into you, what kind of life he's trying to speak into you. Now let's pray. Father, we come to you.